In this episode of the Living for Truth podcast, we will begin a new book called Art and the Bible by Francis A. Schaeffer, forward by Michael Card. This is two essays. Contents. Forward by Michael Card. Page 7. Essay 1. Art in the Bible. Beginning on page 13. The second essay begins on page 49. Some Perspectives on Art. Forward. And with truth comes beauty, and with this beauty a freedom before God. In 1812, Dr. Benjamin Rush wrote a letter of congratulations to his close friend John Adams. He had been encouraged, encouraging Adams and Thomas Jefferson to renew their long, fractured friendship. Adams had responded, offering an, quote, olive branch, end quote, letter written to Jefferson on New Year's Day. Jefferson responded shortly afterward, upon hearing the good news, an overjoyed rush wrote back to Adams, quote, Some talked, some wrote, and some fought to promote and establish it that is, the American Revolution. But you and Mr. Jefferson thought for us all. Two hundred years later, another revolution took place, a revolution of the Spirit. It was called the Jesus Movement. And unless you were caught up in the midst of it, you might have difficulty appreciating what a liberating word, what a breath of fresh air, art, and the Bible was. A lot of people talked, wrote, and even fought over the Jesus movement. But Francis Schaeffer did a good deal of thinking for us. And more importantly, he taught us how to think. Almost as soon as the movement began, it was plagued with confusion. While some of us were trying to embrace the gifts God was pouring out on the body, others were calling them a curse. They claimed that contemporary styles... Even certain instruments, like the guitar, were not appropriate or acceptable in the church. Into the midst of this confusion stepped a quirky, goateed man in lederhosen. He spoke words of faith and freedom. Into a word, into a world that had become suspicious of the beautiful, Schaefer reminded us that the Father of Jesus was also the God of beauty. At a time when we needed concrete biblical objectives, Schaefer provided perspectives and structures, major and minor, while at the same time insisting again and again that it is our lives that are supposed to be the lived-out works of art. We were free, he insisted. Our imaginations were free. We were free to create, as long as we never forgot that we were slaves to Jesus. Schaefer moved freely from Heidegger to Eliot, to Filippo Lippi, to Luther, expecting those of us who weren't familiar with these creative giants to look, to go look them up. In the process, he exposed us to a wide scope of thinkers we would never have known otherwise. His insistence on the integration of content with vehicle and what he called validity provided a directive that cut through the confusing fog caused by all the dissension. 
but his encouragement was not a carte blanche. It was a defense of artists to the church and a challenge to the artists themselves to remain redemptively within the church. This book, a primer on biblical creativity, sought to drum into us the idea that we create out of a worldview and that is, and that it is our responsibility to align that point of view with Scripture before we continue on. He encouraged artists to take seriously the Lordship of Christ in every aspect of their creative lives. He brought biblical clarity at a time when the movement badly needed it. He warned us that our creative struggle should and indeed would last a lifetime. My experience has shown that he was right. At a time when doors were being slammed in our faces, he sought to open them, or at least to hand us a key. He liberated an entire generation of artists, while at the same time placing us under the easy yoke of the authority of Scripture, everything under the Word of God. Perhaps you are thinking, all that was almost a generation ago, what place does Schaefer have today? Though it might be true to repeat the worn-out notion that, quote, this book can speak to a whole new generation, end quote, that does not really say enough. Today, over 30 years after it was written, many of us believe a new movement is coming. What we believe and hope and trust is that the timing of this new edition of Art and the Bible is in accordance with a new revolution of the Spirit that is soon to come. So, young artists, invest yourself in the truth of this little book. Open your eyes to the beauty that is unveiled through the Scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, come alive to the freedom that is uniquely yours to create to the glory of God. Think. Michael Card, singer, songwriter, and author of Scribbling in the Sand. Chapter 1. Art in the Bible. What is the place of art in the Christian life? Is art, especially the fine arts of painting and music, simply a way to bring in worldliness through the back door? We know that poetry may be used to praise God in, say, the Psalms and maybe even the, in modern hymns. But what about sculpture or drama? Do these have any place in the Christian life? Shouldn't a Christian focus his gaze steadily on religious things alone and forget about art? and culture. The Lordship of Christ. As evangelical Christians, we have tended to relegate art to the very fringe of life. The rest of human life, we feel, is more important. Despite our constant talk about the Lordship of Christ, we have narrowed its scope to a very small area of reality. We have misunderstood the concept of the Lordship of Christ over the whole of man and the whole of the universe, and have not taken to us the riches that the Bible gives us for ourselves, for our lives, and for our culture. The Lordship of Christ over the whole of life means that there are no platonic areas in Christianity, no dichotomy or hierarchy between the body and the soul. God made the body as well as the soul, and redemption 
is for the whole man. Evangelicals have been legitimately criticized for often being so tremendously interested in seeing souls get saved and go to heaven that they have not cared for not cared much about the whole man. The Bible, however, makes four things very clear. 1. God made the whole man. 2. In Christ the whole man is redeemed. 3. Christ is the Lord of the whole man, now and the Lord of the whole Christian life. And 4. In the future, as Christ comes back, the body will be raised from the dead, and the whole man will have a whole redemption. It is within this framework that we are to understand the place of art in the Christian life. Therefore, let us consider more fully what it means to be a whole man whose whole life is under the Lordship of Christ. The conception of the wholeness of man and the Lordship of man over creation comes early in Scripture. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. From the very beginning, therefore, man and woman, man and woman being created in the image of God, both of them, were given dominion, or lordship, lowercase l, over the whole of the created earth. They were the ones who bore the image of God, and bearing that image, they were to be in charge, to tend the garden, to keep it and preserve it before their own lord. Of course, that dominion was spoiled by the historic space-time fall. And therefore, it is no longer possible to maintain that dominion in a perfect fashion. Yet when a man comes under the blood of Christ, his whole capacity as man is refashioned. His soul is saved, yes, but so are his mind and body. As Christians, we are to look to Christ day by day, for Christ will produce his fruit through us, True spirituality means the lordship of Christ over the total man. There have been periods in the past when Christians understood this better than we have in the last few decades. A few years ago, when I started to work out a Christian epistemology and a Christian concept of culture, many people considered what I was doing suspect. They felt that because I was interested in intellectual answers, I must not be biblical. But this attitude represents a real poverty. It fails to understand that if Christianity is really true, then it involves the whole man, including his intellect and creativeness. Christianity is not just dogmatically true or doctrinally true. Rather, it is true to what is there, true in the whole area of the whole man in all of life. The ancients were afraid that if they went to the end of the earth, they would fall off and be consumed by dragons. But once we understand that Christianity is true to what is there, true to the ultimate environment, the infinite, personal God who is really there, then our minds are freed. 
We can pursue any question and can be sure that we will not fall off the end of the earth. Such an attitude will give our Christianity a strength that it often does not seem to have at the present time. But there is another side to the Lordship of Christ, and this involves the total culture, including the area of creativity. Again, evangelical or biblical Christianity has been weak at this point. About all that we have produced is a very romantic Sunday school art. We do not seem to understand that the arts, too, are supposed to be under the Lordship of Christ. I have frequently quoted a statement from Francis Bacon, who, has, who was one of the first of the modern scientists, and who believed in the uniformity of natural causes in an open system. He, along with other men like Copernicus and Galileo, believed that because the world had been created by a reasonable God, they could therefore pursue the truth of the universe by reason. There is much, of course, in Francis Bacon with which I would disagree. But one of the statements which I love to quote is this, quote, Man by the fall fell at the same time from his state of innocence and from his dominion over nature. Both of these losses, however, can even in this life be in some part repaired, the former by religion and faith, the latter by the arts and sciences. End quote. How I wish that evangelical Christians in the United States and Britain and across the world had had this vision for the last fifty years. The arts and the sciences do have a place in the Christian life. They are not peripheral. For a Christian, redeemed by the work of Christ and living within the norms of Scripture and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Christ should include an interest in the arts. A Christian should use these arts to the glory of God, not just as tracks, mind you, but as things to beauty, things of beauty to the praise of God. An artwork can be a doxology in itself. Nonetheless, while the concept of the Lordship of Christ over the whole world would seem to include the arts, many Christians will respond by saying that the Bible has very little to say about the arts. More specifically, some people say that the Jews had no interest in art because of what the Scripture says in the Ten Commandments. But that is just what we cannot say if we read the Bible carefully. Still, because many Christians make this challenge, their view deserves to be considered and answered in some detail. No Graven Image those who feel that art is forbidden by Scripture point first to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, Jehovah thy God, am a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Isn't it clear, they say, that man is forbidden to make likeness of anything, not just of God, but anything in heaven or on the earth? Surely this leaves no place for art. But before we accept this conclusion, we should look at another passage in the law, which helps us to understand what the commandment in Exodus actually means. You shall make you no idols, neither shall you rear up Rear you up a graven image, or a pillar, 
that is, a standing image or a statue, neither shall you place any figure, figured stone, in your land to bow down unto it, for I am Jehovah, your God. Leviticus 26, verse 1. This passage makes clear that Scripture does not forbid the making of representational art, but rather the worship of it. Only God is to be worshipped. Thus, the commandment is not against making art, but against worshipping anything other than God, and specifically against worshipping art. To worship art is wrong, but to make art is not. Art and the Tabernacle One major principle of interpreting Scripture is that Scripture does not contradict itself. This is why it is important to note that on Mount Sinai, God simultaneously gave the Ten Commandments and commanded Moses to fashion a tabernacle in a way which would involve almost every form of representational art that man have ever known. Let us look at this in more detail. While Moses was on Sinai, God gave him specific instructions concerning the way in which the tabernacle should be made. He commanded Moses to gather from the Israelites gold and silver, fine cloth and dyed ram skins, fine wood and precious gems, and so forth. Then God said, According to all that I show thee, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture thereof, even so shall ye make it. Exodus 25, 9. Where did the pattern come from? It came from God. This is reaffirmed a few verses later, where God said, And see that thou make them after their pattern, which hath been shewed thee in the mount, or, as the Hebrew says, which thou wast caused to see. Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. God himself showed Moses the pattern of the tabernacle. In other words, God was the architect, not man. Over and over, in the account of how the tabernacle is to be made, this phrase appears, And thou shalt make. That is, God told Moses what to do in detail. These were commands, commands from the same God who gave the Ten Commandments. What were some of them? There were, of course, many. But we will concentrate on those concerned with the art in the tabernacle, the very place of worship itself. First, we find this statement about the ark in the Holy of Holies. Quote, And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. Exodus chapter 25, verse 18. What are cherubim? They are part of the angelic host. What is being commanded? Simply this. A work of art is to be constructed. What kind of art? representational art in the round, a statuary of representation of angels, was to be placed in the Holy of Holies, the place where only once a year one man, the high priest, would go. And it was to be done by the command of God himself. Some may say, yes, but this is, a very, special be- this is very special because these are angels that are being pictured. There is a sort of religious subject matter, It's not ordinary art, representing things on the earth. True enough. But we find that just outside the Holy of Holies, lampstands are to be placed. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. Even its base, and its shaft, its cups, its knops, and its flowers, 
shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side thereof, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side, three cups made like almond blossoms in one branch, a knop and a flower, and three cups made like almond blossoms in the other branch, a knop and a flower, so for the six branches going out of the candlestick. Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 33. And the description goes on. Thus we have another work of art, a candlestick. And how is it decorated? Not with representations of angels, but with representations of nature, flowers, blossoms, things of natural beauty. And these are to be in the tabernacle at the command of God, in the midst of the place of worship. Later in Exodus, we find this description of the priest's garments. And upon the skirts of, of it thou shalt make pomegranates of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, round about the skirts thereof. Exodus 28.33 Thus, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he was to take with him, on his garments, a representation of nature, carrying that representation into the presence of God. Surely this is the very antithesis of a command against works of art. But there is something further to note here. In nature, pomegranates are red, but these pomegranates were to be blue, purple, and scarlet. Purple and scarlet could be natural changes in the growth of a pomegranate, but blue isn't. The implication is that there, there is freedom to make something which gets its impetus from nature, but can be different from it, and it too can be brought into the presence of God. In other words, art does not need to be photographic in the poor sense of photographic. It is tempting sometimes to read the Bible as a holy book, treating the historical accounts as if they were upper-story situations that had nothing to do with down-to-earth reality. But we must understand that when God commanded these works of art to be built, some artists had to make them. There are two sides of art. It is creative, yes, but our art is also involves the technical details of how things are to be made. Exodus 37, 7, we are given something of these technical details. And he made two cherubim of gold. Of beaten work made he them at the two ends of the mercy seat. The cherubim on the ark didn't suddenly appear out of the sky. Somebody had to get his hands dirty. Somebody had to work out the technical problems. The very thing that a modern artist wrestles with. These artists had to wrestle with. We shall see more of this as we discuss the temple. The temple. The temple, like the tabernacle, was not planned by man. Once more, the scripture insists that the plan derived from God. David, the chronicler, says, gave Solomon, quote, the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit, end quote. For the various parts of the temple, First Chronicles twenty-eight eleven through 12. And verse 19 reads, All this, said David, have I been made to understand in writing from the hand of Jehovah, even all the works of this pattern. End quote. David's experience with God regarding the temple was not just an upper-story religious experience. 
part of this experience involved the propositional revelation of how the temple should be made. David knew how to build the temple because God told him. In fact, David said that God made him understand in writing what the temple was to look like. We are not told by what means this writing, this propositional revelation, came, but we are told that David, by inspiration of God, had such a writing which gave him the pattern of the building. What, therefore, was to be in the temple? For one thing, the temple was to be filled with artwork. Quote, and he, that is Solomon, garnished, or covered, the house with precious stones for beauty. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 6. Notice this carefully. The temple was covered with precious stones for beauty. There was no pomegranate, there was no pragmatic reason for the precious stones. They had no utilitarian purpose. God simply wanted beauty in the temple. God is interested in beauty. Come with me to the Alps and look at the snow-covered mountains. There can be no question. God is interested in beauty. God made people to be beautiful, and beauty has a place in the worship of God. Young people often point out the ugliness of many evangelical church buildings. Unfortunately, they are often right. Fixed down in our hearts is a failure to understand that beauty should be to the praise of God. But there in the temple which Solomon built, under the leadership of God himself, beauty was given an importance. The chronicler goes on to say that Solomon overlaid also the house, the beams, the thresholds, and the walls thereof, and the doors thereof, with gold, engraved, carved, cherubim on the walls. Second Chronicles chapter three verse seven. We talked about we talked above about the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. They were art in the round. Here is carving. Base relief. There was base relief everywhere you looked. And there was also art in the round. Quote, and in the most holy house he made two cherubim of image work. Verse ten. Then in verses 16 and 17 we read, And he made chains in the oracle, and put them on the tops of the pillars, and he made a hundred pomegranates, and put them on the chains. And he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. End quote. Here are two freestanding columns. They supported no architectural weight, and had no utilitarian engineering significance. They were there only because God said they should be there as a thing of beauty. Upon the capitals of those columns were pomegranates fastened upon chains, artwork upon artwork. If we understand what we are reading here, it simply takes our breath away. This is something overwhelmingly beautiful. In Second Chronicles 4, we are told how Solomon made a huge altar, also a molten sea, or a pool, or a bath, that was about 15 feet in diameter, and according to some estimates, may have had the capacity of just under 10,000 gallons. Under the sea, and holding it up, was the likeness of oxen, which did compass it round about for ten cubits, compassing the sea round about. The oxen were cast in two rows, cast when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen, three looking toward the north and three looking toward the west, 
and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set upon them above, and all their hinder parts were inward. Second Chronicles chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Here again is representational art in the round placed in the temple. Angels are represented by the base relief of cherubim. Inanimate nature is represented in carvings of flowers and pomegranates. And animate nature is represented in the form of cast oxen. Representational art of non-religious subjects was thus brought into the central place of worship. To some extent, it could be said that the oxen were functional since they held up the sea. But what function would the following have? And it, that is the molten sea, was a handbreadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup, like the flowery, flower of a lily, verse 5. The sea was not to be plain, but to be carved with lilies simply to be beautiful. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 29, we have an additional detail. It comes in the description of the panels of the, on the ten bases of brass in the temple. Quote, and on the panels that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubim. End quote. God is saying, I'll even have lions in my house, carved lions, oxen, and cherubim. Not for a pragmatic function, just for beauty. We could, of course, continue to multiply the references to art in relationship to the temple. For example, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 29 reads, And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, without and within. This sounds much like what we have looked at above, but it brings into focus something different. Here, cherubim, palm trees, and flowers are put together. In other words, we have representational art of both the seen and the unseen world. I don't believe cherubim is a figure of speech. Cherubim have form and are real. In fact, I am looking forward to seeing them someday. Yet, we may well ask, how can you make a representation of something in the unseen world? The answer is simple. It's easy if God tells you what they look like. The making of cherubim was something to do with propositional revelation. Ezekiel, for example, saw cherubim twice. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 25, and Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. There is nothing at all problematic in picturing cherubim if God shows you or tells you what they look like. We, see, we saw how, with the tabernacle, the artist was required to solve certain technical problems. The same is true for the art in the temple. In the plain of the Jordan, in the plain of Jordan did the king cast them, the various works of art that were to be in the temple, in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zeradah, Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 17. Just as Michelangelo chipped with his hands the marble from the great Italian quarries, so the Hebrew artist casts the bronze in a particular geographical place, a place where the clay was just right to make a good form from his model. These Hebrew artists were not different from men today. Both live in the same world and have to deal with all the technical realities of the various forms of art. Secular Art So far we have been concerned with art that is involved specifically with the worship of God, whether it's subjects 
subject is angels or nature. And it is clear that since all this art was God-commanded, specifically religious subjects, are not necessary for art. The factor which makes art Christian is not that it necessarily deals with religious subject matter. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn something about the secular art of Solomon's day. For here, Solomon's throne is described. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the finest gold. There were six steps to the throne, and the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays on either side by the place of the seat, and two lions standing beside the stays. The twelve lions stood there on the one side, and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 18-20 through 20. Every time I read this description, I am intrigued. I would like to have seen this magnificent work of art, ivory overlaid with the finest gold, and guarded by two lions by the side of the throne, and twelve lions on the stairway to the throne. Some scholars have, who have wondered why the two lions and the twelve lions are mentioned separately have suggested that the two lions at the top were alive and the other twelve were cast. We cannot be sure whether that is the case or not, but just imagine it for a moment. Imagine yourself, Solomon, sitting up there with the two lions roaring away on either side of you, chained securely, no doubt. But what a throne! What a piece of secular art! Jesus' use of art. If anyone is still troubled concerning the Bible and representational art, then he should consider what the Bible says about the brazen serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. You will recall that while the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, they complained to Moses about the lack of bread and water. God then sent fiery serpents among them, among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people died. Numbers chapter 21, verse 6. So the Israelites came to Moses, confessing that they had sinned and asked, asking Moses to pray that God would take the serpents away. God then replied to Moses' prayer, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a standard, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he seeth it, shall live. Verse 8. Moses obeyed this command, and those who looked upon the serpent of brass lived. The striking thing is that Jesus used the, this incident and this work of art as an illustration of his coming crucifixion. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth may in him have eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. What was Jesus using as an illustration? A work of art. But then perhaps someone will say, yes, but they smashed it. Hezekiah broke it up in 2 Kings 18.4. That's true. In fact, God was very pleased with its destruction. But why did Hezekiah smash the brazen serpent? And he, Hezekiah, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. Did he smash it because it was a work of art? Of course not. Because God had commanded Moses to make it. He smashed the work of art because men had made it an idol. What is wrong with representational art is not its existence, but its wrong uses. Poetry 
We have been concerned thus far solely with representational art, but the Bible is concerned with other art forms as well. The most obvious is poetry. When we think of poetry in the Bible, we think immediately of the Psalms. But there is much Jewish poetry elsewhere, and not all of it concerns specifically religious subjects. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 19-27 through 27 is a secular ode, a poem by David to the praise of Saul and Jonathan as national heroes. Later in 2 Samuel, we are told that David wrote his psalm under the leadership and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David the son of Jesse saith, And the man who was raised on high saith, The anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of Jehovah spake by me, and his word was upon my tongue. 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 through 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31 confirms the fact that David was a prophet. So we might paraphrase David as follows. Quote, yes, I was a prophet. I was a fourth teller of God. And how did I write? Well, I wrote my poetry under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. End quote. We must not think that David was a prophet only when he wrote prose, for his poetry is just as inspired. How then can we say, or have even the slightest inclination to feel, that God despises poetry? Interestingly enough, we have in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures that dates back to the 2nd or 3rd century BC, a record of a psalm that is not in our Bible. There is a question, of course, whether it is a real psalm of David, but it sounds like David. We do not need to think that everything that David wrote was inspired by God the way what is in the Bible is inspired. So even if this is a genuine psalm of David, it is probably not inspired in that sense. Certainly not all art is God speaking as a muse through the artist. Rather, it is the mannishness of man that creates. The artist is a man does not disappear, leaving the artist as a man does not disappear, leaving the muse alone to speak. We can consider the following psalm from the Septuagint. Therefore, to be David, writing a piece of poetry as a piece of poetry. I was small among my brethren, and youngest in my father's house. I tended my father's sheep. My hands formed a musical instrument, and my fingers turned a psaltery. And who shall tell, my Lord? The Lord himself, he himself hears. He sent forth his angel, and he took me from my father's sheep. And he anointed me with the oil of his anointing. My brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord did not take pleasure in them. I went forth to meet the Philistine, and he cursed me by his idols. But I drew his own sword and beheaded him, and removed reproach from the children of Israel. That certainly sounds like David. David pictures himself as a young boy out on the hillside tending his sheep. And what does he do? He is the artist. He takes a piece of wood and shapes it to make a sharp, a harp. My hands formed a musical instrument. As we shall see, the Bible says that David, as a craftsman, later made the instrument that the instruments that were used in the temple worship. But David was also a musician. His fingers tuned a psaltery. 
Like a man tuning his violin, David prepared his instrument for playing. The writing of poetry, the making of beautiful instruments, the tuning of it, so that its music can be filled with beauty, David did all these things as a spiritual exercise to the praise of God. There is something exciting here. How can art be sufficiently meaningful if it is offered up merely before men? Then it does not have a sufficient integration point. But it can be offered up before God. David says, And who shall tell my Lord? That is, who shall tell my Lord that I made a beautiful instrument? Who will tell him that I turned the psaltery? Who will tell him that I have written this poetry? Who will tell him about my song? Then David responds, The Lord himself. He himself hears. Nobody had to go and tell God. God knew. So the man who really loves God, who is working under the lordship of Christ, could write his poetry, compose his music, construct his musical instruments, fashion his statues, paint his pictures, even if no man ever saw them. He knows God looks upon them. So you might say to David, David, why do you sing? Just to amuse yourself? Only the little white-faced sheep will hear. And David will reply, not at all. I am singing, and the God of heaven and earth. He hears my song, and that's what makes it so worthwhile. Art, of course, art can, of course, be put into the temple, but it doesn't have to be put into the temple in order to be to the praise of God. One of the most striking secular poems in the Bible is the Song of Solomon. Many Christians in the past have felt that this poem represents the love of Christ for his church. The poem can, in fact, be interpreted in this way, but we must never reduce it solely to the picture of this relationship. It depicts the relationship between Christ and the church because every proper relationship between a man and a woman is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. The fact is that God made the love of a man for a woman to be representational of the love of God for his people, of the bridegroom for the bride, of Christ for his church. But in the Song of Solomon, God takes a poem that expresses in great antiphonal strength the love of a man for a woman and a woman for a man, and places it in the Word of God. This kind of poetry, just like the Psalms, can also represent something wonderful. How beautiful a praise to God this poem is. In one way, its placement in the Bible is parallel to the sort of secular art that we notice on Solomon's throne. But it is more significant because this poem is put into the scripture as scripture itself. How often do Christians think of sexual matters as something second-rate? Never, never, never should we do so accordingly to the word of God. The whole man is made to love God. Each aspect of man's nature is to be given its proper place. That that includes the sexual relationship, that tremendous relationship of one man to one woman. At the very beginning, God brought Eve to man. A love poem can thus be beautiful. So if you are a young man or a young woman, and you love a girl or you love a boy, you may indeed write beautiful love poetry. Don't be afraid. That too can be a praise to God. And when the two people are Christians, it can be a conscious doxology. Before passing on to other art forms, I would like to simply emphasize that even though it uses a different poetic form than English does, Hebrew poetry demands strict literary discipline. In fact, 
Hebrew poetry is probably much harder to write than Anglo-Saxon poetry. And just as an artist, a craftsman, was required to work with precision as he cast the bronze statues or carved the base relief on the walls of the temple, so the Hebrew poet had to be careful with the technical aspects of his poetry and strive for technical excellence. And in the striving for excellence comes a way to praise God too. Music Music is another art form which the Bible does not ignore. One of the most fantastic pieces of musical art must have been the song the Hebrews sang after they were rescued from Pharaoh's army. Exodus 15 gives us that song. Think of this great host of Israelites, hundreds of thousands of people, gathered on the far side of the Red Sea and singing an antiphonal song, a work of art. Quote, and Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to Jehovah, for he hath triumphed, glori- triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath been thrown, hath he thrown into the sea. Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 through 21. Here we have the men singing the stanza. These are given in Exodus 15, 1 through 18. And the women, led by Miriam, singing the chorus. Think of the joy of deliverance from oppression, and think of what a scene this music-making must have been. But there was also music in the temple. We are told in First Chronicles 23.5 that 4,000 praised Jehovah with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. 4,000, a song ran out, rang out from 4,000 at once. And the chronicler adds, and David divided them into courses or divisions according to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Meriah, Merari. Verse 6. In other words, David divided the singers into parts, making what we would call a chorus. And art breaks forth with all its beauty, all its strength, all its communication, and all its glory. From the time of Hezekiah comes a scene I love to picture. Hezekiah had had the temple cleansed, and the worship reformed according to the law of God, which had been set aside for a long time. And then, while the sacrifices were being offered, Hezekiah, quote, set the Levites in the house of Jehovah with cymbals, psalteries, and with harps. Notice the various instruments. According to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was of Jehovah, by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty five through 26 then Hezekiah commanded that the offerings be burnt upon the altar. And when he, when the burnt offering began, the song of Jehovah began also, and the trumpets together with the instruments of David, king of Israel. And all the assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Verses 27 and 28. A tremendous use of music and art, again, all at the commandment of God through his prophets. I suppose my favorite piece of music is Handel's Detenjen Te Dom. I have a record of this music, in which all the instruments are playing. I want to tell you it is marvelous. I've played the grooves off of it. Every time I read this section in Second Chronicles, I think of the Detenjen Te Dom, 
and that and of the fact that what was going on in the time of Hezekiah must have been ten times greater. Trumpets, cymbals, psalteries, harps, and the various instruments of David. Music upon music, art upon art, all pouring forth, all pointing up the possibility of creativity in praise of God. All carried to a high order of art at God's command. And when you begin to understand this sort of thing, suddenly you can begin to breathe. And all the terrible pressure that has been put on us by making art something less than spiritual suddenly begins to disappear. And with this truth comes beauty. And with this beauty, a freedom before God. We should note that with regard to the temple, all of the art worked together to form a unity. The whole temple was a single work of architecture, a unified unit with freestanding columns, stationary base relief, poetry and music, great huge stones, beautiful timbers brought from afar. It's all there, a completely unified work of art to the praise of God. Surely this has something to say to us about architecture, and we ought to be asking the Lord how we can produce this kind of praise to God today. Drama and Dance Two more art forms are mentioned in the scripture. The first is drama. In Ezekiel we read, quote, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, and lay it before thee, and portray upon it a city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build forts against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it round about, and take thou unto thee an iron pan, or a flat plate, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face toward it. And it shall be it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. What was this? It was a simple drama. The tile had the skyline of Jerusalem drawn upon it, as a simple backdrop, so that the people could not miss what Ezekiel was portraying. Jerusalem was to be besieged, and the warning was taught to the people by the command of God in drama. Let us notice, it is not that every use of any of these art forms is automatically right, but that they are not wrong, per se. Ezekiel was asked to enact this drama each day for over a year. For these long months he portrayed a work of drama before the backdrop in order that Israel would understand that God was going to bring down judgment. The second art form, the dance, is mentioned in Psalm 149.3, in which Israel is encouraged to praise God. Let them praise his name in dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. Some may reply, well, in the margin of my Bible, it says that maybe it isn't the dance, but rather the pipe. And I like that better. But I doubt that that translation in Psalm 150, verses 4 through 5, says, Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Two historical portions of the Bible show that God was pleased with people dancing. Exodus 15.20 says that Miriam as prophetess went out with timbrels and with dances. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14-16, through 16, we are told, And David danced before Jehovah with all his might. 
and David was girded with a linen ephod. Imagine David bringing the ark of God into his city, a very high moment indeed among the Jews. And the ark which had been outside is now being brought in, and David is filled with joy as he worships God. It is interesting, by the way, that David was clothed with an ephod. This means that he was not dancing naked, as was common among the heathen. Nonetheless, when David's wife saw it, she didn't like it. Yet God liked it, and David's wife was reproved for reproving David. Art and Heaven Revelation 15, verses 2-3 through 3, reads, And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the beast, and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing by the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O, o Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Art does not stop at the gate of heaven. Art forms are carried right into heaven. Is there any platonic separation here? Not a bit. In the Art Museum of Nekatel are three great murals by Paul Robert, which for over 80 years have borne testimony to all the people of Nekatel that Christ is coming again. One of the murals testifies to the fact that Christ has a relationship to agriculture, another to the fact that Christ has a relationship to industry, but the third one is the greatest. It depicts the relationship between Christ, the intellectual life, and the arts. Paul Roberts, a Swiss artist who was a real man of God, understood this relationship very well. In the background of this mural, he pictured Nacatel, the lake, on which it is situated, and even the art museum, which contains the mural. In the foreground, near the bottom, is a great dragon wounded to death. Underneath the dragon is the vile and the ugly, the pornographic and the rebellious. Near the top, Jesus is seen coming in the sky with his endless hosts. On the left side is a beautiful stairway, and on the stairway are young and beautiful men and women, carrying the symbols of the various forms of art, architecture, music, and so forth. And as they are carrying them up and away from the dragon to present them to Christ, Christ is coming down to accept them. Paul Robert understood Scripture a lot better than many of us. He saw that at the second coming, the Lordship of Christ will include everything. But he also knew that if these things are to be carried up to the praise of God and the Lordship of Christ at the second coming, then we should be offering them to God now. In the same picture, he portrayed the city of Nechatel, the beautiful lake, and the art museum itself, the art museum of Nechatel, and its works of art should be to the praise of Christ now. The reality of the future has meaning for the present. Do we understand the freedom we have under the Lordship of Christ and the norms of Scripture? Is the creative part of our life committed to Christ? Christ is the Lord of our whole life, and the Christian life should produce not only truth, flaming truth, but also beauty.